Hello, and thanks for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. This is a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech, radicalization, and disinformation. Now, throughout this series, we speak to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement, and policymakers to identify and analyze the latest trends and approaches in addressing these challenges. This podcast is a, a part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. And today we're zooming in on meaningful compliance. My name is Lydia Elcourie and I'm from TechScan. And today we're joined by Claire Pershan, who is from the Mozilla Foundation, and she is their EU advocacy lead based in Brussels, Belgium. So Claire, thanks a million for joining us today on Zooming In on Hate. Thanks for having me. So let's jump first into into our first question straight away. So a lot of our listeners are going to know about MozFest. They might have attended or spoken at MozFest. But can you tell us a little bit about the wider work the Mozilla Foundation does, please? Absolutely. And I actually could probably spend the podcast talking about different things that Mozilla does, but I promise I won't do that. I'll just say that Mozilla was founded actually as a community open source project in 1998. So we are coming up on our 25th anniversary. I think that's worth mentioning. Uh, and so after that founding, it became a nonprofit, which is the Mozilla Foundation. And the mission is to, is to ensure that the internet is a public resource that's open and accessible to everyone. And the internet is everywhere. And increasingly internet also means AI. Our activities are all in some way trying to kind of create or uplift things that promote our principles and advance our mission, like privacy, inclusion, transparency, and decentralization. And so that's a lot of work that's done by a lot of different people. And that very importantly includes all of our tens of thousands of volunteers who advance the mission as well. And also it's uh, forwarded by tech products through the Mozilla Corporation, which is our subsidiary. Specifically with the foundation, you mentioned MozFest, and that's great. I hope people know about it. There's a lot of other interesting projects and contributions that we have at the foundation, so I'll just shout out a couple of them. One thing is our Privacy Not Included Consumer's Guide, which is a resource to help people navigate the privacy policies of different connected devices, like things like apps, you know, dating apps or mental health apps, and to kind of navigate the different privacy policies and security practices of those different offerings. We also have our annual internet health report, which is also a podcast. So a different podcast worth listening to. Um, this increasingly focuses on AI and the next edition is also going to focus AI on AI and will also be in a podcast form. And then last, I wanna mention um, Common Voice, which is a publicly available voice data set powered by volunteers who donate voice samples to create a database of diverse voices for more diverse purposes. So it's sort of a taste of the different things that are happening across the Mozilla landscape. And, you know, my work, of course, relates most to advocacy and campaigning, which I think we'll probably be talking about during this podcast. So, Claire, what are the greatest areas of concern for you in your work at the Mozilla Foundation right now? So with that last piece, the, the legislative frameworks, um, there, there are kind of two things that are, are concerning or worthy of attention, I think, in vigilance right now. And first is the kind of translation of tech legislation into product level changes that will hopefully also lead to societal changes. This is a complicated process, let's say. I think an example that I would imagine a lot of listeners would 
might resonate with them is the idea of cookie banners, uh, pop-ups on websites. So the banners that nudge us into consenting to allow cookie trackers when we visit websites. An internet cluttered with cookie banners was probably not the intention. In fact, it was not the intention of GDPR and the ePrivacy Directive, but it was a way for companies to continue business as usual. So this is the title of the podcast, an idea of superficial compliance in order to basically continue as before. And so we're really kind of monitoring now with new legislation that's being implemented by companies that it is implemented according to the spirit of the legislation. Another kind of translation process that happens with legislation is actually adaptation to each EU country. So we're actually really concerned with the way that the DSA is being adapted in France right now. They have a bill, the SREN, which is adapting the Digital Services Act, but also the Digital Markets Act and the Data Governance Act to the French context. And it is, let's say, overreaching a bit by requiring something unprecedented. It's requiring browser-level blocking. And so as, as much as we're really happy that the DSA is being implemented, we are really vigilant to the way that it's implemented in different countries. And this is one example. Claire, can you just give us a little bit more information of what browser-level blocking would entail? Yes. So this is currently unprecedented that the um, the French administration would be able to select government uh, websites that then should be blocked by a browser like Mozilla's Firefox. It would require a technical capacity that we currently don't have uh, that would essentially um, require us to to block the websites that were chosen by this administration that would be named by the French government. And these are websites that I suppose violate the DSA or violate French law? Well, these would exactly would be websites. The, the, the article, Article 6 of the SREN, is trying to crack down on scamming websites. And this is a very serious and very real problem for a lot of people. But there are better ways to do this. And so this would kind of, the, the, the concern is that this would allow something that then other governments could also ask for. So even if the selected websites are always all scamming websites, what happens when they're not and what happens when other governments also can require the browser to actually first be taking into account the websites that that administration does or does not want users to access? Thanks, Claire. So jumping on to our next question now, can you tell us what role research plays in the work of the Mozilla Foundation? Research is really fundamental uh, to our work. We do it across the organization. We produce different kinds of research, but a lot of our most powerful research, I think, has been produced using crowdsourced data donations. That these data donations from volunteers allow us to scrutinize platforms in ways that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise, and also allow us to run experiments based on that data. So for instance, we've done research onto YouTube, which we found was particularly under-scrutinized. So we built a browser extension that allowed us to study it using this crowdsourced data. And this actually, as of today, represents the largest crowdsourced experiment on YouTube's algorithm with over 20,000 volunteers having contributed to this. We recently launched a dedicated open source research and investigations team, which is actually going to leverage, continue to leverage this crowdsourced donations approach and will allow us to study the role of platforms that they play in individuals' lives and in society, and that will then also help us guide legislation. And we think it's really important that we continue to play this role because there's still very little transparency into social media that doesn't come directly 
on the company's terms. And watchdogs who do this kind of research are often under-resourced and face even further barriers than just resourcing, including legal intimidation. So we're really um, excited about this, this new open source research team and the work that we're going to continue to do with our volunteers. So Claire, I mean, I think the, the research that you've mentioned, like this, the browser extension on, on YouTube is incredibly valuable to our community. And I think we're all really grateful for the work the Mozilla Foundation does, because without the evidence, without the research, we, we won't know how to assess the current landscape and then, you know, decide, decide where policy needs to be tweaked uh, accordingly. And I, and I think it empowers us as, as civil society organization, as tech company platforms to get straight to the issues. And you touched on it. The biggest issue of our time at the moment is the Digital Services Act. And this is a huge question, but how do you think it's going? How do you think preparation for the DSA is going? We are in implementation phase and there are a lot of moving pieces here. So I think... Yeah, it's difficult for me to say how it's going in a word, but to kind of talk about those different pieces, right? We have the European Commission that's now becoming a regulator, setting up their unit. We have member states who are appointing their digital services coordinators who will then sit together on a board who will play a really critical enforcement role with regard to the other digital services in scope of the DSA, but also with, with respect to the very largest online platforms. Ireland will have no less than 11 flops in their jurisdiction. And then we have secondary elements that are also coming, uh, guidelines, standards, secondary legislation. It will be months and even years for all of these kind of DSA add-ons to come into place. And one really important one that's being prepared is the Delegated Act on Data Access. And we desperately need details on all parts of this data sharing regime including on the framework through which platforms will share public or non-personal data with a wider range of researchers. This is critical to monitoring things like hate speech, so I would imagine listeners are also very attentive to this delegated act. It cannot be left to platforms yet to continue deciding essentially how and with whom they share what data. Absolutely. And I, I, I love listeners to take a, a look at a blog that's on the Mozilla Foundation and written by you, Claire. And, you know, you talk about the information asymmetry and that's it really, isn't it? That's the problem we've got at the moment. And just online platforms assemble information about us while we know little about them. And while they're, they share data with commercial third parties and researchers who should hold them accountable to society and monitor these concerns have limited data access. There's a complete mismatch there. It, it just doesn't make sense. Right. And I would say, you know, the work that we're able to do with our volunteers and with data donations, we are lucky to be able to do. It's very resource intensive and it takes these tens of thousands of volunteers to do it. So this kind of research is not a viable path for every watchdog organization, which is why we need these other pathways that will come through the DSA. Brilliant. Thank you. OK, so we mentioned VLOPs, very large <laughs> online platforms. So their implementation implementation phase starts now, this month. Um, and I'd love to know how you see that. How is that going from the perspective of the commission, platforms, the regulators, civil society? How, how would you assess progress so far? 
Yes. So it's it's starting. It's been starting for a long time, and now it's starting more. The DSA is kind of a long a long line of of different announcements and milestones. I definitely think that August twenty fifth, which is the date by which the the vlops and losses. Let's not forget the very large online search engines. I've started calling them flows. I think it's just easier to, to say flows. I'm not sure if that's gonna catch on in Brussels. Um, but at the 20, August 25th is the date by which they will submit their risk assessments. So their evaluations of their systemic risks and the measures they'll put in place to mitigate these risks. And they'll submit these reports directly to the commission regulator. So this is, it's a big moment and it's also not a big moment because these, these will, will not be made public, um, and these are not something that there is a framework on or clear kind of guidelines around. So we may have redacted summaries of them in many months. It may be as many as 18 months from now that we would have access to them. And there is, therefore, a, a, a possibility that this will be sort of a superficial compliance measure. These will be cherry-picked risks that not be fully, you know, adequately assessed. So there is a possibility for superficial compliance here that we are certainly paying attention to. So we're hearing lots of announcements come from, from the VLOs about uh, product changes or about additional transparency. And we have to wait and see, and to the best that we can also from the outside assess how meaningful and how deep product level these changes are. So for instance, along with my colleagues Ramak Molavi and Jesse Murkowski, we released a little analysis of Meta's system cards that they announced. And we found that these system cards were sort of a little bit of a case of compliance theater and that the explanations that Meta provided for their algorithmic ranking systems made clear that there were trade-offs in how content is ranked, but did not actually provide transparency into how the trade-offs were decided. The system cards were also at once uh, too technical for end users but also not detailed enough for an external auditor. So this is the type of thing that we're, you know, we're not going to fully celebrate. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand. And, and we know from speaking to colleagues from civil society that civil society is being jettisoned into the center of the DSA and being given enhanced roles like, like we, really haven't seen before uh, a lot of extra competence has been given to them but also a lot of extra responsibility and I just wonder how do you, how are you advising civil society on embracing these roles or what are your words of advice for civil society on this? I see the DSA as having layers of enforcement and a particularly important role for civil society perhaps in an unprecedented way. I think Mozilla along with so many civil society partners, many of them also based here in Brussels, are really finding our space in this new system and ready and already actually supporting in all the ways that we can. We're going to see a whole new ecosystem emerge around the DSA with official roles, right? There will be vetted researchers who request and, and, and gain access to data. There will be second party auditors who will be contracted to audit the platforms in scope. But there are also a lot of compliance work to do within the cracks, via third party or adversarial auditing, or by watchdogs with other kinds of expertise, like human rights expertise. And so actually, Mozilla, along with civil society partners, are advocating for a formalized role for civil society to be able to support enforcement and to be able to ensure that we can fill these cracks efficiently and inclusively. 
So when you say a more formal role, you mean beyond the trusted flagger role? Yes, the trusted flagger role is quite specific to flagging illegal content and that and being appointed also by the digital service coordinators. But the, the trusted flaggers is actually a really interesting case of these official roles and then also unofficial roles where the DSA will actually possibly create two regimes of trusted flaggers. There will be trusted flaggers that are named and appointed as such by the digital service coordinators. And there will also be organizations that have previously been trusted flaggers directly with companies, and that will probably continue to do that work. But the kind of civil society mechanism or the oversight that many of us in Brussels are asking for is something above this, which is really just, it's, it's about dialogue and organization and making sure that we can then have a multiplier effect by including more civil society voices and, and more communities and perspectives in this these many layers of oversight. It, it makes a lot of sense. And at the question every, on the tip of every civil society organization's tongue is, do you foresee this new enhanced role as being funded? Because I think civil society are, are, are worried, scared, probably rightly so, that they they won't be able to fund this extra responsibility in these new roles? Yes, I think this is a really important question. I don't think we have answers to this yet, but uh, it is a lot of work that civil society takes on. I think that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely essential when we think about us doing this work. I know the DSA makes references to civil society in there's specifically a recital that, that makes it very clear that civil society is supposed to be consulted in important elements like these risk assessments, but whether civil society will be compensated for that time or whether civil society will be supported with resources or even with access, because access to things like public data is also sort of a resource, right, that allows us to do this work. So these are open questions. I think they're really important questions, Lydia. Yeah, and we've been raising them in throughout uh, the European Observatory of Online Hate uh, meetings. And 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 there there is, of course, there's a there's a deficit in competence because this is all new to civil society organizations who are, are who some of which are new to working with data so there there's um there's plenty of gaps to be filled for sure i think it will take us years i really do um i don't think you're the only one who thinks that claire um so now i want to ask you are there any glaring omissions from the dsa and and how do you rate the DSA's treatment of fringe platforms? I'd be really interested to hear what you think about that. So I think uh, there's a really pressing question still, which may be an omission, maybe it will be clarified, uh, but about geographic scope. And when we think about the societal risks and the systemic risks that these the largest platforms have here, what is the territorial scope on that? You know, does that include the risks that they pose around the world? to content moderators and data workers and citizens going to the polls everywhere? Or is it really limited narrowly to the EU? I think this is kind of a, I don't know if I would call it an omission because this is EU legislation, but the way that these platforms are global begs the question. And I think also to the point about sort of circumventive compliance and, and nudging and these sort of deceptive design elements, the DSA had an article, Article 25, which was supposed to kind of act as a little bit of a safeguard against superficial compliance. Uh, however, this was really watered down during the negotiations. So this is something that now we are not guaranteed through the legislation that we will have really 
well-presented alternatives, for instance, to things like the recommender system not based on profiling? You know, will this be made really visible and attractive to people or will it be sort of um, a little bit to the side and and um, something that you know users ultimately might not actually go for? So there are these types of, of elements, I think. But the question about fringe platforms, I think that goes back to the kind of the designation process and actually the, the way that it was decided the scope of the largest platforms. And they're purely based on quantitative metrics, not on qualitative. So this means that, and in addition to that, actually, the they are self-reported the numbers that these that the platforms um, you uh, provide to uh, have the commission then assess uh, which which platforms were in scope. So this means that platforms that may have had actually uh, the required number of users may not have reported that accurately. We are left to take them at their word, largely for now. Uh, and it also means that because of the not taking into account qualitative aspects of what I think when you talk about fringe platforms, I think you're talking about platforms that play kind of an outsized role, right, in the diffusion of, of hate speech and hateful content. I think often of Telegram, which is not a very large online platform here, but has a huge role in our information space and in facilitating a lot of the problems that we have online. Even a lot of the problems related to scamming, actually, that the Article 6 of the French law wants to address. So for me, there's definitely, uh, there are definitely some elephants in the room. And and where do you see Telegram, just as an example, where do you, how do you see the situation in and around Telegram evolving under the current version of the DSA? There are obligations that would apply to Telegram. Uh, so there could, but they would be um, obligations not for the lot. They would be obligations for just an online platform. And that would also depend to a large extent on where they are ultimately headquartered in the EU, where they put their legal offices. Uh, so this, yes, I will be very curious to see where they name their, you know, their official representative there and also how much they respond to those obligations that they would have. Great. Thanks, Claire. Um, so much food for thought. You're, you know, there's uh, and it's fascinating having these conversations. But we really, we need more info, really, don't we? As as the weeks and months go by, I think we'll have a clearer picture of how this is going. Um, I think, I think um, we 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 all have seen or read some of the research that uh, Mozilla has conducted on individual platforms. So I'd love to run through a selection of them and just to get your take on the big issues with each of the platforms. Can we start, you mentioned YouTube and you mentioned the browser that you've developed. Tell us a little bit about the wider work you're doing on YouTube. So last year we released research into YouTube's recommender systems building on that browser extension which was actually really looking at users, uh, the user control features that YouTube has. This was qualitative and quantitative research. And we found that people don't trust that those controls are actually affecting their recommendations. More than a third of the people we surveyed felt the controls didn't have an impact on their recommendations whatsoever. Then the quantitative component, our data largely confirmed this. We found that they do not have, always have an impact on the recommendations. Um, that the do not recommend channel button, excuse me, does not always have an impact on those recommendations. And we also found that controls like the dislike and the uninterested button had very little impact. 
So in some sense, this might be research that kind of proves something that we all have a suspicion about, but that's critical because seeing that there is a user control button is not the same thing as knowing that the button has actually meaningful impact. Absolutely. And let's move on to TikTok, another one of the flops. So TikTok, we've, we've done research on in a couple of different ways, and we have more coming. Our Privacy Not Included Buyer's Guide looked at TikTok's privacy policies as part of a study that was actually looking at some of the most popular apps in the Google Play Store. Google Play Store, by the way, being a very large online platform. And we found that there was actually a discrepancy in the way TikTok described their privacy policies, saying that they did not share data with third parties, when in their own policies elsewhere, no, not in the, in the App Store, they said that they, that they do. So we're finding discrepancies here, which were important to, to address. We also did research, sort of a larger scale research, right, into TikTok's, um, into paid political influence on the platform. And since we did this research a few years ago, we've been advocating for TikTok to produce an ad archive, which they have now announced with the additional legislative pressure of the DSA. So I think this research also goes to the to show the power that we can have when we combine rigorous research and a legislative solution and advocacy. And I you know, mentioned this open source investigations work. We will be actually creating a tool to do crowdsourced studies of TikToks for UFeed. So I would hope that some listeners might be interested in joining us in this research and volunteering some of their data, some of their time to this uh, in the way that we were able to make really important contributions to research on YouTube. We hope to do the same with TikTok. Brilliant. Thanks, Million. And just briefly, can we touch upon Twitter? Really quickly on Twitter, I would just tell you to look for the research done by my colleague Odanga Madung, who's actually looked at coordinated manipulation of Twitter's trending algorithm and how that was done by essentially a disinformation for higher industry in Kenya. Anything by, that you can find by, by Odanga on this topic would be really enlightening. So I really encourage people to, to check out his work. Um, I think we're all in a wait and see day by day situation with Twitter at the moment because it's, it's a, should we call it a very dynamic situation? That's a nice word for it. Yeah, I think Twitter <laughs> went from being the easiest platform to research to the hardest and we could have again another episode on that maybe you will probably you should if we can if we can get an, enough transparency and data uh, in and around it yeah I think um I think it's badly needed and it, it is it is such a pity that it's gone from a platform that was easy to research to one that it's we really don't fully know what we're dealing with and that's actively intimidating researchers right now, as we're seeing with the lawsuit against CCDH. Absolutely. We, yeah, we know. And we're hearing it in our day-to-day work as well. And I, I, I'd imagine that's probably the intention. So, right. Thanks a million, Claire, for that overview of the work you're, you're doing. And finally, to wrap up today, Claire, can we talk a little bit about the other initiatives, Mozilla Ventures and Mozilla Social? Talk to us about the work you're doing there. Yes. So in addition to research, right, there's a lot of other ways to promote a healthy internet. And one of those ways is through alternative tech. And so Mozilla Ventures is recently launched, actually the beginning of this year. It's investing in products that advance the Mozilla Manifesto. And that includes Block Party, which is the social media safety and privacy app, which some listeners might know about. And uh, a number of other different uh different um, projects that 
really align with Mozilla's values and the rest of our work. And Mozilla Social, big announcement, uh, Mozilla is venturing into the Fediverse to offer a healthy social media alternative. Mozilla Social is part of the decentralized social network Mastodon that operates on the ActivityPub protocol, which is open and decentralized. And the content moderation strategy for Mozilla Social is gonna be rooted in our manifesto and our values. This will not be easy work, but this is, I think, really important that we try to offer something different. I think that'll be good news for a lot of our listeners. So what's the timeline on that, Claire, on Mozilla Social? I believe it is still in a private beta, so it's not open to everyone yet, but you can already follow it. You can sign up for announcements and you can keep up to date with it as it becomes more widely available. Brilliant. And how can we find information about that on your website, I guess? Uh, yes, on the website, but also if you just search moz.social, you will find it, or mozilla.social, excuse me, you'll find it on Mastodon. That's fantastic. Claire, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise from the Mozilla Foundation and for, for the great work you're doing. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us and for tuning into this episode of Zooming In on Hate. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast series from wherever you, whatever streaming platform you use and stay updated on future discussions by following us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Goodbye for now and thanks very much for listening.